good morning. It's good to see you all. And uh, glad to gather for line by line as we are uh, walking through our expository study, word by word, of the Gospel of John. And we arrive at the end of John chapter 13, uh, just a few verses for our review this morning, and then into John chapter 14. So as you have your Bibles before you, we're excited to get started. Let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we are just so thankful that on this spectacular Lord's Day, we're able to gather together like this. Thank you for letting us be in a room like this. Thank you for being able to gather together as believers, as, as members of this church and, and guests gathered together for the study of your word. Father, your word is like a magnet that draws us to it. And it's like a vortex that draws us deeper into it. And Father, this is to your glory, and it's your gift to us, and we receive it gratefully this morning as we study it. We pray that the Holy Spirit will apply it to our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we read a lot of uh, literature, and particularly fiction, uh, you may find yourself with a particular book of fiction that so engrosses you, so captures your imagination, interests you, that uh, at different stages in your life, you'll go back and read it again. And uh, by the way, there's an interesting aspect to that too, because you are and are not the same person reading that same book again. You, you are, obviously, but there's a continuity, but there's also a discontinuity, because uh, so much has happened in your life, so many thoughts have gone through your mind, that, and you've read so many other books in between the, those readings that you, you do find yourself reading it as a somewhat different person. But the one thing that you can't do after you know the story is act like you don't know the story. That's the problem. If it's a, if it's a thriller, if it's a novel, if it's a work, uh, a, a murder mystery, if you read the book when you're 18 and you're reading it again when you're 35, you still know who did it. And that also shapes the difference of reading. Well, one of the things we have to keep in mind as we're reading the Gospels is not just that, but the fact that what we are reading about is real time, space time in history, is this is the Holy Spirit inspired Gospel of John. And, and so not only do we know, as we've been studying the Bible all our lives, do, do we know, many of us, what happened, and we know what happened and what's coming next, but we are also dealing not with literary characters, but with real-life human beings, and in particular here, the disciples, who don't know what's going to happen. One of the things that comes up in our reading is that when we are looking at certain events and we're watching certain characters, it's as if we want to go and stand alongside them and say, listen really carefully to what he's saying here. This is, this is more important than you appear to recognize. And that, that's where we are right now. And this transition from the last few verses of, of uh, John chapter 13 into John chapter 14, there's no doubt that John chapter 14 is part of the farewell discourse of Jesus. So this is John organizing the gospel, and this, this, this big farewell discourse is going to include some of the richest truth that Christ will reveal to his church. Now, whether or not the last verses of 13 are a part of the farewell discourse or the last part of the gospel before the farewell discourse really doesn't matter. But what makes me think that they are part of the farewell discourse is what happens in these last verses of chapter 13. 
when you have this discourse between Jesus and Peter, Simon Peter, as you see here in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, in the verses preceding when we were together last, when Jesus gave the new commandment to the disciples, he spoke of the fact that he was going to be leaving. He used that language in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So just in the space of a few verses here, Jesus has said twice, I'm going where you can't go. You're going to be looking for me, and you're not going to be able to find me. And this is not some kind of Zen cone. It's not some kind of riddle. He means it exactly as he's saying it, but the disciples don't seem to be hearing it exactly as he was saying it. And uh, maybe we can imagine some reasons why they wouldn't. Jesus had been talking about his hour coming, but that's an indeterminate amount of time. And it's clear that even as Jesus has been talking to them about the establishment of the church and the, 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 the kingdom and uh, laying out what is going to happen to him in the passion and in, the, of course, the, the crucifixion and even the resurrection, they, they don't have a clear timeline in mind. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to be away from you. Is, is that temporary? Is, is that because you're going to be taken away from us in arrest, but then returned to us? What does this mean? You're going to seek me and you can't find me. Peter says, I'll just go with you. And Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't go. And Peter says, I'll go with you anywhere. I will lay down my life for you. Now, Jesus clearly knows that Peter does not understand what he's talking about here. But then Peter jumps ahead and speaks about a willingness to die. And Jesus says to him, not only are you not going to be willing to die for me in the next several chapters, but you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. So this sets up our anticipation of, of what is going to come. And uh, just thinking about why John tells us these things just this way, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, in one sense it appears that we need to understand that the disciples didn't understand. And in sympathy, we need to understand we would not have understood. Again and again, we come back to the privileged position we have to be Christians who have the New Testament. So we, we, we have the, the Gospels, we, we have the entire New Testament, we know the things that have happened. But beginning in, in verse 1 of chapter 14, we're clearly in the farewell discourse of Jesus. And this is the big discourse, the big sermon, or, or speech would be one word you could use for it, but the discourse is a more formal way of saying this is, this is a long teaching that Jesus delivers to the disciples, and, uh, and th this is in a compression of hours, keep in mind, because we're already told, He's already told Peter that he is going to betray him before the cock crow. So this is, this is like the farewell discourse just before the events of his arrest and crucifixion. And of course, you know that, but keep that in mind, just in the compression of time. Chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, we think of those opening words to verse 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And uh, familiar words to us, familiar words to us. And, and very comforting words to us. We can assume they were very comforting words to, to the disciples. But the interesting thing about that is that the one thing we often can't do is keep our heart from being troubled. It's just one of those things where you... you uh, you look in the face of a toddler and say, don't be upset. Too late. You know, you can even upset a toddler saying, don't be upset. And it's because we have so little control over our hearts. Uh, we, we are creatures of women, fury, and fear. And they all come together at times. And our, our hearts are troubled. And, and when our hearts are troubled, it's very, it's very difficult to to calm our own hearts. Now, that, that's why in the psychotherapeutic community, you even have these, uh, you know, soothing words that a counselor may teach someone to use, who in a, in a moment of crisis, you start speaking these soothing words to yourself or whatever. And, uh, of course, uh, maybe sometimes they work. A lot of times they don't. For one thing, our hearts are often troubled about something that's just absolutely true. I mean, the, the, the threat is real. The loss is great. The fear is justified. How do you let not your heart be troubled? But Jesus wouldn't say it if he didn't mean it. So he actually means that his disciples are to, to not let our hearts be troubled. In the same way that he will say, fear not. And uh, the context is important. The next words he says are, believe in God, believe also in me. So, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So, as you look at the context here, the, the belief that he's calling us to is the belief that we'll still a heart. Because it's not just the intellectual assent, it's, it's fiducia, it's trust. This is the trust in me, uh, trust in God, and trust also in me. Now, now that, that, that's not some kind of self-therapy. That's not self-talk. That's the external referent that makes all the difference in the world. We are the people who have the infinite privilege of having untroubled hearts precisely because we believe in God and we believe in Christ. And that means we trust God and we trust Christ. So that's not to say that we will not sometimes have anxiety. It doesn't mean we will not sometimes experience fear, but it means we are called in obedience to Christ not to give ourselves to those because we believe in God believe in Him. Believe in God. Believe also in me. By the way, that's an imperative. It could, uh, in, in the actual construction of the Greek text, it could be an indicative or an imperative, and either way it works. It could be like you believe in God, just to remember that. But in the context, it does appear to be more of an imperative. Just believe in God. Believe also in me. But then he immediately says that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
this beautiful picture of the kingdom as a house with many rooms. And the King James in my father's house are many mansions. And it's all, it's all the same thing. It's a, we're, not, we're not talking about uh, small rooms. We're talking about almost unimaginable, commodious space. This is, the, this is the grandeur and the graciousness of the house of God, the place that Jesus is going to prepare for his own. In it, an infinite number of rooms. Very interesting. Jesus is preparing an abode. He's going to prepare a place. And Jesus speaks of this logic. If, I, if it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you so. I, I told you I'm going to prepare a place. And this, this place I will prepare, it's a superabundance of, of what you could imagine. Speaking of the kingdom and its infinite greatness, graciousness, abundance. And he's telling them that he's leaving them, and that as he's leaving them, he's going to prepare a place for them, this house of God. In Luke and in 1 Corinthians, we have references to the eternal dwellings that will come to believers. This, uh, this dwell, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, as the 23rd Psalm tells us. To, to dwell in God's house is the most unimaginable privilege for human beings. We we as sinful human beings, we, we were in God's garden and we defiled it with sin. In Adam we sinned. We did not deserve to stay in the garden and were kicked out of the garden with divine warriors preventing us ever going back. But now Christ is even as we speak preparing a place for us of unbelievable abundance and we will dwell in the eternal dwellings in the house of the Lord. Forever, Those who are in Christ will be in the house. And uh, the house has many rooms. Now keep that in mind as the passage continues. Because there is an enormous shift in this passage which you have to watch very carefully from many as in many, many, many to one as in singular one. Jesus says, I've got to prepare a place for you. And if, I, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus is telling the disciples that the separation from them is going to be temporary. Now, that's, that's a very heart-assuring uh, statement. Jesus says, you're going to look for me. You're not going to be able to find me. Uh, where I have to go, you can't go with me. I'm going to prepare a house with many rooms for you. But then he says, and then I will come back and get you. You know, I, you don't have to come find me. I'm going to come back and gather you. And you will be with me again. Precious for us. Even when we think about death, our death, and we think about our separation from this life, and we recognize that in Christ we are secure because there is nothing that can separate us from Christ. And we are, as the Bible says, sleeping, awaiting. The Bible also says that uh, to be absent from the body for believers is to be present with the Lord. But we will be physically present just uh, in the kingdom and are not only resurrected but glorified bodies. We will be with him and, and in these rooms in God's eternal abode. 
he, asks, he says something interesting here. At, at the very end of this paragraph, he says, and you know the way to where I am going. You know the way to where I'm going. Well, he just told them, where I'm going, you can't go. Uh, I'm going to prepare a, a place for you. But uh, you know the way to where I'm going. Very interesting. Peter had spoken up just a matter of a few verses earlier. But, uh, but now it's Thomas. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Amazing candor again. You have Thomas here, and uh, we, we will know more of Thomas later. But at this point, we know that Thomas is one of the twelve. And Jesus has just said, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, how can we know the way to where you're going? You just told us that we can't go with you. And this is where Jesus speaks the sixth of the great I am statements of the Gospel of John. Jesus said to him, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. John chapter 14, verses 6 and 7 are absolutely crucial to New Testament Christology and to our understanding of the gospel. And uh, verse 6 in particular is a definitive answer to one of the most important questions we as Christians have to answer. And we have to answer it in every generation. We have to answer it rightly and clearly and faithfully. How many ways are there to the Father? One. Now, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. No one that would be comes to the Father but by me. Uh, that can be read in two ways, and both of them are absolutely right, and both of them are absolutely necessary. And, and so here, here, here's, the, here's the first way we should read it. It's uh, a matter of which emphasis you put on which syllable or word in this case. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, he, here's the first way to read it, and that is the, the great positive declaration that there is a way, that there is a way to the Father. There, 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 there is a way to be in communion with him, and, and Christ is that way. That's the, that's, the, that's the first way to read it. The second way to read it is the, what presses upon us urgently because especially of the apologetic context in which we live, and that is the way. So it's a, it's a definite article, and it's the repetition of the definite article. So it, Jesus says there's not a way, there's not a truth, there's not a life. There is the way, there is the truth, and there is the life. And Jesus is clearly speaking of himself. Now, this puts us in a very, very good place to consider the most urgent questions of the, of the Christian faith. And in this case, one of those questions is uh, how many ways are there to the Father? And again, the answer comes down here, one. I told you one of the things we need to watch is the shift from many to one. So in my Father's house are many rooms, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We have to watch the distinction between the many and the one in all of the Bible, as a matter of fact, but in particular in the New Testament, the distinction between many and the one. So there is one God, one faith, one baptism, 
You just go through all the ones uh, that we have uh, in, in the Bible. Then there are the many's, men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Uh, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. Uh, we have in the Old Testament different tribes and peoples, and th there are many, but there's one God, and uh, he's made the covenant with one nation, Israel. There is, there is one Lord, one Christ, one Savior, one Messiah. There's one people of God, one saved people of God. So getting the one and the many clear in scriptural terms is absolutely necessary. And it, it's as fundamental as monotheism is fundamental to the Bible. There's only one God. Well, Jesus here is answering the question that Thomas basically asks when he says we don't know the way. And Jesus is pointing to himself. That's, Jesus says, yes, you do know the way, because the way is not a map. Uh, the way is not a road. The way is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The triplicate reference here, the way, the truth, the life. The way comes up because that's the context of Jesus saying where he's going, and you know the way. And Thomas says, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, you know me, so you know the way. Maybe, you, Thomas, you've never thought of it that before. Maybe none of the disciples have thought of that, that, that before. But I'm not just, I'm not just your rabbi. I'm, I'm not just the, the one whom the, the Father has sent. I am myself the way. It's so crucial, the way. He is, he, in speaking of himself as the way, he is the one singularly in whom we have salvation, and he's accomplished everything needful for us. There is no salvation team. There's one Lord and one Savior, one Messiah, one suffering servant, one anointed one who will sit on David's throne forever, one substitutionary sacrifice. Keeping the one and the many distinct in biblical terms is a tremendous challenge and a necessary act of discipleship for us. From whom, from what nations will the church, the body of Christ, be drawn? Many, many, many. Uh, how many people will be in the kingdom? Many, many, many. How, how, how different will they be? Different in many, many ways. It will be in many rooms in the abundance of the kingdom, but there's only one king. There's only one way. There's really only one house. It's eternal dwelling of God. The word way here is not just like a map. It's, it, it means that this is the means. You know, House of Representatives, we have a Ways and Means Committee, which means they deal with the budget. The, the way is the means. He is, he is the way. He will accomplish the salvation. And uh, as he says here, I am the way, the truth, and, and the life, the truth. So it's, it's the singular truth. And Jesus has already said that. He's already spoken of the fact that his words are his own. They, they are shared by none other. There is, there is one truth teacher. There is the one who has come to bring salvation. The very same person who accomplishes it is the person who reveals it. He is the revealer, the truth. And he is the life. And we were told that in John 
in the opening prologue, in him was light, and the light was the life of men. He came to bring life. There are basically three big options in the world today as you think about the one and the many in salvation. There's universalism, and there's inclusivism, and there's exclusivism. And uh, cut to the chase, as you well know, exclusivism is the biblical position, made abundantly clear right here in John 14, 6. Universalism has been a strain throughout much of Christian history. It, it, it certainly became very popular uh, in the aftermath of the modern age, which came with the discovery of the world and all, all kinds of different people. And so the assumption on the part of many untethered from Scripture was there must be many legitimate ways to God. And for one thing, you had this, uh, this reduction of, of religion to a substance or a, a genre uh, in which there were just different varieties. And um, the 19th century was very much a part of this, a world parliaments of religion held in Chicago in the, the late 19th century in which you had one of these and one of those and one of the other, and it was just, uh, it, was, it was like the United Nations of religion. Now, there's a problem with that. Even if you, even if you have no theological scruples whatsoever, there's a big problem with that, is, and it comes down to this. The kind of Muslim who would have gone to an event like that, the kind of Muslim who would have gone to an event like that, which means not representative of Islam at all. Uh, the kind of Christian, identifying that as a, a representing institutional Christianity, who would have gone to a meeting like that, the kind of Christian who would have gone to a meeting like that, which means, you know, I wouldn't have been there. And, and so you end up with, you know, basically, and it's the same thing today. It's the same thing today. You have an interfaith service. Uh, the first political party to hold its convention this, this summer, had an interfaith service beforehand, and so I took a cup of aspirin and got a cup of coffee and turned it on. And uh, it's exactly what you think it's going to be, it was. And, and again, it's the, the kind of Hindu who shows up, and that's the kind of Hindu who would show up in that. Uh, that this, is, this is just it. This is, this is actually not even what it claims to be. But what it is, nonetheless, is the idea, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird hangover from the 19th century, that religion is just a thing, and, um, and they're just different brands. Uh, that's it's all, basically, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're all bringing morality and meaning to a world, you know, etc. Um, the... One of the metaphors that was used early in the 20th century is the stained glass window. So, you know, you, there's one light, like, like one sun, and it, it comes through stained glass window, and uh, they're different colors, and uh, the different religions are different colors, and they just refract the light, you know, differently. Kumbaya. And, uh, and then it's, it's the stair step. You see, the problem with that is, the problem with, you know, just the, the facets of glass and a stained glass window, each refracting the light in its own beautiful way. Uh, the problem with that is uh, there are more sophisticated and less sophisticated. It's just by, just by human ingenuity. For, for, forget a Christian theological rubric. Just think about, well, there's a difference between someone who's sacrificing chickens over here and someone who's building cathedrals over here. Yeah, let's just say that's just, there it is. And so you add that to ideas of Western superiority and all the rest. And so you end up with a stair step 
system. Okay, so everybody's actually trying to get to the same place, and you got this stair step, and, you know, animism is down here in the bottom step. You know, they're still carving rocks and whatever. Uh, and then you can go, you know, go up the stair step, and you, you can imagine the people, who, whoever's making the argument, got the top step. You don't make the argument to put yourself in the middle of the staircase. And so in theological and spiritual sophistication, you get up here and you get Christianity and Judaism. And by the way, this is what helped to produce the, uh, what was called the uh, Protestant Catholic Jewish consensus of the uh, midpoint of the 20th century, which was, you know, when you get up here, the ultimate top steps are going to be the American tradition, Will Herberg, uh, described it in his book with the title Protestant Catholic Jew. That's it. And so there's that stair step. But, you know, it turns out that that's pretty insulting if you're not on the top step. And, uh, and so that, that doesn't work too well either. Just even, even in the United Nations, that doesn't work too well. But the biggest problem with that, by the way, is just intellectual honesty, because the closer you look at what are called the great religions, the closer you look, the more different they are. It's not true that you start looking at them more closely and you go, yeah, they're basically the same thing. No, they're not basically the same thing. I mean, it's ludicrous, actually, to say the same thing. Even desiring the same thing are headed in the same way. The best way to understand that distinction is to take just Christianity as one example and Buddhism as another example. Uh, they're actually contradictory. They're, what, what, what Christians are seeking is what the Buddhists are seeking not. And so, for instance, um, here you have, you have a house with many rooms and an abundance. Uh, the, the notion of, uh, of Buddhism as a philosophy, far more than a theology, by the way, is, of course, to empty oneself of desire. The the Christian mandate is to fill oneself with desire, but to desire God. Uh, there's no such thing as a Buddhist John Piper. It's impossible. Uh, you can, <laughs> if you're going to write a book called Desire God, you, can, you, can't, you can't desire Buddha. Uh, because the whole point is to eliminate desire. Not to mention the fact that the Asian worldviews based upon a cyclical model of history with a recurring, you know, ever-recurring ever reality. And Christianity and uh, the entire biblical worldview is based upon a linear, uh, non-repeatable uh, worldview, which, anyway, you, you look at that and you realize, okay, it, 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 takes some, it takes someone being intellectually dishonest or well-intended but not smart to say religions are all seeking the same thing. It's just, it's just not true. They're not, I mean, some religions are religions of revelation. And, uh, and so, yes, you have Judaism and Christianity, but then you also have Islam with, with the Quran, but then you also have Mormonism with uh, Joseph Smith and golden plates and peep stones, and you got science and health with the key to the scriptures with the Christian scientists. So you've, got, you've got all kinds of revelation claims, but even those revelation claims are not the same thing. The revelation claim of Islam is basically that, in fact, some historic claims of Islam is that Muhammad was himself illiterate. So they, they, they want to so separate any human authorship from a divine authorship that they're saying that it, would, it was impossible that Muhammad could have contributed to the Quran because he wasn't even literate. Now, that's not a universal claim that he wasn't literate. It is a universal claim that it's, uh, it's simply God's word through Muhammad. He's the, he's the prophet. That, that's it. 
uh, of course, the Christian and Jewish biblical understanding of inspiration is quite different than that. It is that every word is inspired by God, every word is fully inspired, but it's that as we are told in the New Testament, God moved men of old to write. The Holy Spirit moved men of old to write exactly what he wanted written. And so we, you, don't look at the, uh, you don't look at the Quran, or at least you're not supposed to look at the Quran, and see anything about the personality of Muhammad, but you do look at the Gospel of John, and it's really important to us, that is written by John the beloved apostle. That's, a, that's really important to us, beloved disciple. And it, it's really important to us that Peter sounds like Peter, and Luke, the physician historian, is, is, is writing as Luke. Uh, so anyway, it's, the point is that uh, universalism claims that everyone is basically seeking the same thing, and religion is just a part of the human condition, and uh, that whatever salvation is, it must include all of us. And as I said, this has been a strain within Christianity for centuries. And the most famous of the early universalists would have been Origen. Uh, and uh, Origen basically, uh, basically taught that Christ's atoning work must be so comprehensive that no one can be left out. Now, that's, that's an illustration of how heresy happens and it, it shows you that it's possible to have kind of a well-intentioned heresy. In other words, it's not, it's not that Origen said, I'm out to deny the gospel. It's just that he said, I'm going to let my imagination tell me where the gospel goes. Well, that's the problem. You can't, you can't let your imagination say where the gospel goes. Your imagination has to be controlled by Scripture. And so Origen said, Christ's work of atonement will be lacking something if not everything and everyone is redeemed. Well, you can understand as a human logic, Christ's work will be lacking something if there is something or someone who is not redeemed. By our logic, Origen had a point. But that's not the biblical logic at all. The biblical logic says the all, and this becomes so clear in the Gospel of John, that there's any place we can't get this wrong, it's the Gospel of John. The all is not the all of creation and the all of the creation of human beings, every single human being. The all is, as Jesus will say, all the Father has given me. That becomes very clear in John chapter 6. All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This becomes exceedingly clear, and we've made reference to this already in anticipation in John chapter 17, just a few chapters ahead in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus says, I'm not praying for all those in the world. I'm praying for those you have given me. So, yes, all will be redeemed, but the all is not of all human beings, but of those the Father has given to the Son. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, of those I will lose nothing. No one can snatch them from me. It's a symphonic whole. The Gospel of John is just so incredibly helpful. It just reminds us of what a gift to us the New Testament is with the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the Gospel of John. We're so dependent on the Gospel of John to answer some of these big questions, and it's clear that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John's been answering these big questions from chapter 1, verse 1. It, 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 it's a symphonic argument in which by the time we get here to John chapter 14, the difference between the many and the one and what it means that all will come to him 
it all becomes very clear. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Universalism is a denial of the gospel. It's, it's, a, it's an outright denial of the gospel because it says that what will come in the preaching of Jesus, what is the logic even of God's covenantal love in the Old Testament, and, uh, and what will become abundantly clear in a passage such as Romans chapter 10, where we're told that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But those who call upon the name of the Lord are the ones who profess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. So there's universalism is a denial of the gospel. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's possible only by denying vast tracts of Scripture and cutting the heart out of the language of Jesus as we've seen here in the, in the Gospel of John. The uh, second option, as I said, is what's called inclusivism. And, and here, it, it's more modern than universalism. You know, you've got, like I say, origin centuries ago, back in the early church. And by the way, he was recognized as a heretic for this, so the, the early church had the theological instincts to go, no, that's not right. And uh, then you fast forward in the United States, you've got universalism, um, as a theological movement uh, officially and eventually merged with the Unitarians, and boy, if two ever deserved to be together, uh, and thus you've got uh, here in town the Thomas Jefferson Unitarian Universalist Fellowship over off of uh, Brownsboro Road. Thomas Jefferson Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. You realize what problem they've got now? Thomas Jefferson. And so the Thomas Jefferson Unitarian Universalist Fellowship is right now, I went to their website because I was curious, and yes, they've got a name change uh, committee underway. So Thomas Jefferson was held up as the great exemplar of Unitarian Universalism, uh, but they're going to name themselves something else. The uh, inclusivism says that there are those who will be in heaven who never profess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in the heart that God raised them from the dead in this life, but they're going to be included in what's often described as the economy of salvation because they followed the light available to them. They just didn't know they were following Christ. And, and just to cut to the quick, this is basically the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church as of Vatican II, the 1960s. Uh, and, and it was a Roman Catholic theologian by the name of Karl Rahner who came up with the idea of what he called the anonymous Christian. And so this is someone who's a Christian and doesn't know it. Now, that is a critter impossible according to Scripture. That is the anonymous Christian. There's no such thing as an anonymous Christian. But Karl Rahner said that this anonymous Christian is uh, a person of, whose heart and intent is seeking to follow God with the revelation available to her or available to him. And uh, so insofar as they are... And, and, and remember, the Roman Catholic Church stresses so much the gift of general revelation. Again, we don't believe any less in the gift of general revelation. We just believe more in the impact of the fall. So, in other words, we believe, yes, general revelation is out there, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, to the extent that even God's power and His invisible attributes are clearly seen in the things that are made. But, Romans chapter 1 makes clear in, in a cycle of verses that we exchange the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. We exchange the truth for a lie. Uh, we, we corrupt. The problem is people aren't following the light. Now, that, now, now, 
we're not saying that God has not left vestiges of himself, reminders of himself everywhere. I mean, every once in a while, even in, the, say, the golden rule. You know, people will say, well, one of the signs of the fact that religion is just you know, kind of one thing and, uh, is, is the fact that just about every religion, e- even in ancient Mesopotamia, they came up with something like, you know, treat your neighbor like you only treated yourself. Of course, we know that. Um, from Leviticus chapter 18, and uh, we know that from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus speaks of the first and the, the second of the greatest commandments, you said, love your neighbors yourself. Memorize that verse when I was in uh, Sunday school, just preschool. But inclusivism runs face-to-face into a head-on collision with Romans chapter 10, for example where it's, it's true that salvation comes to the one who professes with the lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and believes in the heart that God has raised him from the dead. Faith comes by hearing, Paul says, and hearing by the word of Christ. And, uh, and then, just in case we missed the point, Paul builds up the logic saying that, and, and this is why we use this in missionary commissioning services and, and, and in the ordination of ministers, is because Paul reverses the logic, and he says if they... If you don't send, then they won't go. If they don't go, then sinners won't hear. And if they don't hear, they won't believe. And not believing, they won't be saved. So, we have Jesus in the Great Commission. We have the entire logic of the New Testament. There is no allowance for inclusivism there's no allowance for anonymous Christians. The only Christians we know. And by the way, we are Baptists, capital B. So we make very clear the entry into the kingdom, which we understand to be what our, our job is, is, is here visibly. Our, our job is visibly, is a visible congregation of saints to, uh, to make certain that no one gains entry to this church or membership in this church without personal profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and obedience and baptism. Now, we don't have x-ray vision to be able to read the heart, but we think our job is to do the very best we know to allow only professed Genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to be members of this church. Now, that's the exact opposite, uh, in many ways, of the Roman Catholic logic. A sacramental theology, if a baby's baptized, baby's Catholic. And uh, Thomas Rees, a Catholic thinker, writing about uh, Catholicism in the contemporary presidential campaign, goes on to say, you know, there are different kinds of Catholics. There are good Catholics and bad Catholics. There are Catholics who follow church teaching. There are Catholics who don't follow church teaching. But he goes on to say, you know, uh, but if you've been baptized as a Catholic, the Catholic Church always recognizes you as a Catholic in some sense, even if you've been excommunicated. You know, so this is, it, again, you can be excommunicated and you're still a Catholic. Our logic is exactly the opposite. And it's traceable right back to this passage, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And of course, Jesus is the life. And, and uh, in him was life and the light, and the light was the life of men. When we speak of Jesus as the life, he's our only hope for life. He's the one who gave us life in the beginning, this, this human life. He's the, he's the one through whom the Father created all, and he's the one who keeps us alive even now. 
But he's talking about eternal life. This is the life that he gives that will be in the place that he's preparing, this abode of God, this heavenly dwelling that has many rooms. He's the life. Now, one thing that's sometimes missed in that for Christians is that when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he just doesn't mean I'm the way into the life. He is the life. And we just need to make sure we, we mark that mentally. He's, the, he's not just the way to the life. He's not just the truth about the life. He's the life. We are alive in Christ, period. There, there is no other life. There is no other eternal life but life in Christ. It's His life He gives to us. We have no life independent of Him. When the church is described as His body... Look through the entire New Testament teaching, it's the fact that we are alive in Christ. It's Christ's life. He alone is alive self-existently, begotten by the Father. We are alive only in Him. Exclusivity is the biblical teaching, made very clear here with the, the, the. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Definite article. The language is very clear, and, and the meaning is very clear, and the context makes it even more clear because this is Jesus getting ready to fulfill all that had been revealed and, and to obey the Father even to the point of death, as Paul will tell us in Philippians chapter 2, humbling himself even unto death, even death on a cross. And this is why. It's because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And then in case we just don't understand that claim of exclusivity, he concludes, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the inclusivists will say, oh, yeah, we get that, but that just means there are going to be people who will uh, die and find out that they were actually worshiping Jesus. They just didn't know. Nope. Uh, and then there are others who are going to say, by the way, and one of the things I had to deal with when I arrived at Southern Seminary in 19. Was the teaching of a post mortem opportunity. Uh, the idea that after death, opportunity for people to uh, profess Christ as Savior. And there's evidently, there is abundant, explicit teaching in Scripture which denies there is any post mortem opportunity. It's appointed that a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. Once we, once we die, that's it. That postmortem opportunity is based on it's a form of inclusivism. That it means people were inclined to Jesus; they just didn't know it until they die, and then uh, they they have the issue clarified. That's just not what's found in Scripture at all. And by the way, you you have people who feel like this is a defensive, weak position for Christianity. We've got to continually apologize for the exclusive claims of Christianity. And uh, that's like apologizing for the atonement. Uh, and, and remember that it's our responsibility to declare the gospel to all. That's, that's evangelism and missions. That's great commission. That's, uh, that's God's saving purpose. In other words, we don't want people to go to hell. We, we don't want people not to know Christ, which is why we plant churches and preach the gospel and share the gospel and send missionaries. But it's because we know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We want other people to know, all people to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus continues. He says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Now, this sounds like a rebuke. I don't think it is. Now, Jesus is quite capable of rebu- rebuking. I mean, get thee behind me, Satan, said to Peter. That's pretty clear. But in this case, it sounds like at first he's rebuking Thomas when he says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It, it, it appears the best way to understand this is, if you had known me, you would have known my father. This is before he came. So this is, he came into his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. So before the incarnation, you really couldn't know the Father as we do in Christ because now we've seen the Father. Now this takes us into a theme of biblical theology. This takes us back to Moses, you know, who wanted to see God. And God said, you can't see me face to face, but he let, he let Moses see his glory passing by as he described the backside uh, as finite human beings, we can't, we, we can't see God the Father in his, in his infinite glory and survive. But in Christ, we have seen the Father. Now, this is what's really important. We're still finite, and we're not destroyed. This is, this, yeah, this is a part of the incarnation. We see the Father truly in Christ. In Christ, we see the Father. In Christ, we know the Father. But Jesus mediates, here's the, the word mediator, so important. Jesus mediates the Father to us in such a way that we're not destroyed. So we're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not with Moses at the rock, all of a sudden confronted with the infinite reality of God, which we cannot survive. Instead, we have Jesus who mediates the Father to us. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. Well, well Thomas does know Christ. And Christ affirms that in the next sentence when he says, you know, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And it's a part of the progressive teaching that Jesus has given the disciples, progressive clarity about who he is, what he's accomplished, what he's about to do, and what it all means. And so here you have, by the way, if you're asking another theological question, here's a definitive answer. The other theological question might be, did Jesus really claim to be God? Does Jesus claim to be deity? Well, of course, any honest reader of the New Testament, that's a fairly illegitimate question. But it might be honestly asked by someone who doesn't really know the New Testament or doesn't, doesn't really understand it. Does Jesus claim to be God? In John 14, 6 and 7, and in this paragraph, among other things, Jesus makes what any Jewish person in the first century would clearly have understood to be an unabashed claim to deity. So much so that uh, this is a part of why they tried to kill him and did kill him. They, they've tried previous times to, to grab him and to kill him. But his hour not yet come. Now his hour's come. But again, he's just explaining this. If you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. And that is so important to us because Billy Graham most famous book was entitled Peace with God. I remember reading it when I was about 10 years old. My grandmother had a copy, and I just picked it up. And I can still remember 
that title, Peace with God, and it was kind of scary for a 10-year-old. And again, I, I had made a profession of faith in Christ. I knew I needed a Savior. I knew I was a sinner. I had uh, claimed Christ and professed Christ. But that title, that book haunted me, Peace with God, because I, I really didn't understand a lot of what it meant for me to face the eternal judgment of God. I mean, after all, fear God is an imperative. Peace with God, how, that, how is that possible? Well, possible only because of Christ. In Christ, we not only come to know the Father, we come to know the Father and survive because we are saved. Well, given the time, I think we will just uh, stop there before going on to the next verse. But let's just remind ourselves of where we are in the Gospel of John in the sequence of the I am statements. And uh, th these are just so important. Seven statements, again, claiming deity. When Moses asked God to name himself so that he could say who sent him, you know, I am that I am. I am. And seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus identifies himself with that expression, I am. In chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And then in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep, the, the true door. In, uh, in chapter 10 also, Jesus describes himself saying, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And again, definite article, I am the resurrection and the life. And then you recognize, okay, what immediately follows after that is I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. Only one remains, and it's in the first verse of chapter 15, and we will be there, we'll be there shortly, where Jesus says, I am the true vine. And at that point, at that point, the I am statements have moved, these, these first six of the seven I am statements disclosing who Jesus is, and, uh, and there's always been a reference to us, such as Jesus, the good shepherd, we're the sheep, but when Jesus says, I am the true vine, as you already know, he's going to say, we are the branches. So it's just this beautiful picture of the church that's coming up. That last I am statement is not just about Christ, but is also in him about the church. So my heart is happy just thinking about John chapter 14. And just a few, few words, really, we just considered I mean, an entire biblical worldview, an entire systematic theology, an entire comprehension of the gospel is just in a few words here inserted in the gospel of John chapter 14. I wouldn't want to miss it. I don't want to miss anything of it. Hopefully our time together this morning means we will miss less of it and receive more of it to Christ's glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so thankful for these few words. We're so thankful for the knowledge that you are the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we're thankful for Christ in whom we have the way to you, the truth, the life, and in whom we see you as to see the Son is to see the Father. We pray in the Son's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.